Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. I moved from a commercial role into a product and a, and a marketing role. And particularly on the product side, it was a huge stretch for me. I was managing people who know everything, who are real product experts about how a product is designed from consumer insight all the way through to production. I didn't know anything about that. But then I suddenly realized, and in those pressure moments, it's about the relationship you have with pressure. I learned to flip it and say, well, I might not know everything about product design, engineering, supply chain, but I do know about this. And I can bring something different and something uniquely that only I can do and I can own. That's why I've been put into this role. Today, I'm talking to Charlotte Cox, the President Emir at Pentland Brands. With over 20 years commercial experience, during which time she's had leadership roles for sporting brands like Canterbury of New Zealand, Mitre and Speedo, Charlotte has won regional awards such as Businesswoman of the Year in 2019, and was a futurist female European winner in 2020. Charlotte's ambition is to get more people to support their mental and physical well-being by increasing participation in sports and outdoor activities. She's also been instrumental in the development and delivery of the Pentland Brands Global Diversity and Inclusion Strategy. In our conversation, Charlotte shares what stopped her picking up the telephone as a child, how team sports show up in business, and how she managed to reel in one of her colleagues with fishing. Charlotte, it's so great to see you and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. I am as well. We met many, many years ago, Charlotte. And so I've sort of tracked your journey over the years, but I think you will be hugely useful to talk to in terms of um, a growing business and your sort of trajectory during your career and how you manage being at the heart of sport as well. It's just, un it's going to be so interesting understanding how you lead people and how you lead yourself. So yeah. let's start. This is a question I usually start with. When do you remember first feeling pressure? So it's funny that you uh, you referenced the sporting um side of things and particularly because sport is, is such a big part of my job actually because of the brands and that we put in front of the consumer are, are built for, for that activity. But I was thinking back about this and the very first time I remember feeling pressure was actually when I was playing for um, playing for a hockey team when I was growing up. Um, I was playing county level hockey. I was part of the Northamptonshire Swim, Swim Club. And I think I remember the feeling of pressure in those big moments because I was always part of a team. And for me, the pressure was just not letting the team down and how could I be at my best and contribute as part of the team and so it was never about my own performance I, I was never a, in, on an individual sport it was all about my contribution to the team and I think that's really interesting because as I've gone through my career it's really played a key role in when I'm at my best you know what, what are the conditions for me to be at my best and that feeling of team and team camaraderie, in it together, uh, win together, lose together, all of those kind of mantras are really hugely been important to me and influenced how I have um, 
how I lead, how I show up. Mm. Um, so from a very early age, I'd say that was probably the first moment. And then there's a second one, I think, which is is probably quite the polar opposite of being um, in a sporting environment. It's actually amateur dramatics. Mm. So believe it or not, I was actually a really uh, shy child. In fact, my mum would always say to me, gosh, she never wants to pick up the telephone. Answer, even answering the telephone, I couldn't even think of doing that. And so I joined an amateur dramatics uh, group about age 11. And I had this like first speaking role. And that's the first time I remember an individual pressure. And it came from me, yeah, I don't want to let the entire company down. But actually, this was about me and how I need to be at my very best in that moment. And there's the spotlight is literally the spotlight is on me. And so I think it's all about the rituals and the habits of how I've prepared for that moment of pressure, which is not dissimilar to sport. You know, I'm sure you've interviewed many, many people from the sporting industry. And they'll often tell you about the individual ritualizations that they go through as they prepare for those big moments. It's not too dissimilar from, from an actor or an actress. There's, no. there's different ways people do things, but the rituals are quite the same. And for me, it was always something about going and looking myself in the mirror and thinking, actually, I just need to look myself in the mirror, have a conversation with myself and say, it's showtime. Like, I have to get myself ready for this because people deserve the best version of me. And I think that, that it helps me if I talk out loud and almost talk to myself because my father used to do something similar with me when before I would go and play, um, I don't know, even sometimes when I played football five aside, he'd, be, he'd always say to me, you know, remember your surname, you can do anything, anything is possible and a real positive energy. And now, sadly, I no longer have him. So I have to, I use him a lot in terms mm. of how I take something that's, you know, he's not around anymore. And I had a huge connection to him. And he was a huge influence on my, on my, on my upbringing and some of those big moments for me. And I take it and use it and flip it as positive mm. um, because I think he's still with me. And so mm. I look myself in the mirror and think, right. Right, dad, it's showtime. Or right, dad, come on, we've got to do this now. And he's still with me. So I flipped something that's been hugely negative in my life in the last year in terms of losing him into something really positive. That's that's so helpful listening to that story. I think, well, there's so many wrapped, things wrapped up in there. First of all, I, I've got this vision of a shy child suddenly being <laughs> pitched into amateur <laughs> dramatics and somehow she's working out this ritual. Like how does a, sh how does a shy person suddenly realise, was it your father that helped you make that um, connection to your own personal ritual ritual, yeah. so that it became, because a shy person being thrown into, I can sort of see when you've got a whole team around you and you're playing sport, if you're naturally shy, it maybe doesn't count quite so much because you're part of a whole mm -hmm. and also you've got a huge skill yeah. um, that isn't dependent on necessarily you speaking or being spotlit on your own. But then suddenly going from that into, okay, I'm going to do amateur dramatics, which, as you say, is very similar in terms of management of your emotional regulation, but you are very much on your own. Absolutely. And if you mess up, you really do mess up the whole thing for everybody else. Well, that's how it feels, doesn't it, when you're part of a, a show. So how yeah. does a shy girl not get completely phased by that? So I, I think because I was doing a lot of sport alongside the amateur dramatics, the, the, the sport supported at the same time being able to then go and test 
you know, can, yeah. I, can I do some of this on my own? I think without that, it would have been quite difficult. I think the other thing is I didn't just walk into a, you know, a leading part on stage. I went into the chorus in the first year I was in the chorus. Yeah, so okay. you build confidence through actually I'm, I can be on a stage. I can have lights on. Actually, I feel good about this and working up towards it. It's not like yeah. I've gone. And I think that's symbolic of my career, actually. When I when I really take a step back, I often get asked, like, what, you know, what would your younger self tell, you know, tell your older self today? It's a it's a, a very standard question, right? And I think one of the things I would always say to people is just don't rush your career. It's not a straight line. And that kind of breadth of experience, it's just been invaluable to me. So I look at some of the lateral moves that I've made and I wouldn't be where I am today had I not gone and made some of those sideways moves versus people are in such a hurry to get to a top position. And it's a it's a long way to fall if you don't have what I would call the toolbox or the equipment once you're in those types of roles to be able to handle some of the pressure that comes with those the big jobs, right? Yes, um, yes. It's no different when you're on the stage, right? I didn't go to being the, the lead role and the moment I walked through the door of an amateur dramatic society. I built my way up all the, all the way. So again, when I did have a lead role, which I eventually then did, you know, I, I felt ready for it. Yeah, and you're really, you're really um, highlighting that sort of embedding of a habit, aren't you, in that, yeah. in that description that you practice it, you up the pressure, you practice something, it ups the pressure, you go from chorus to, you know, um, ensemble piece, and then you go into the lead. And that's, that's because you're embedding all the time. You're realizing, actually, I could do more. Oh, I can do more. Oh, I feel confident. I can do more. And I love this analogy that of how that's mapped out into your career as well. Um, I think a lot of the pressure that sometimes I'm helping someone deal with is exactly what you've just described, actually, Charlotte. The psych being launched into something that on some level feels a large leap <laughs> from, <laughs> from where they were. The potential's been recognized and it's and they've been really fast-tracked right up to the top. And inside, there's a huge feeling of lack of the basics, maybe. I've been there as well. You know, when even when I hear that. I can totally connect with that being something that that people would want to, you know, you would be helping people with. I can remember, you know, a time in my career where I have a I have a need to. I'm, I'm a big learner, right? And I think with being a big learner comes the the personal challenge of managing some of that because I always want to take on a challenge that yeah. others wouldn't, um, and I go often. I've been told over my career, why on earth would you want to go and do that? Um, a, a particular role? Or why on earth would you move out of one function where you know it so well and go over there where you, you know, you know, you know nothing? And and I remember a time where I moved from a commercial role into a, a product and a and a marketing role. And particularly on the product side, it was a huge stretch for me because you know, I I was managing people who know everything about a real product expert about how a product is is designed from consumer insight all the way through to production I didn't know anything about that but then I suddenly realized and in those pressure moments it's about the relationship you have with pressure so I mm. I learned to flip it and say well I might not know everything about you know product design engineering supply chain but I do know about this And I can bring something, you know, different and something uniquely that only I can do and I can own. That's why I've been put into this role. It's about reframing that relationship that you have with pressure in those moments into something positive that's really helped me. 
Can you just talk us through how you do that? So when, like, let's go through the whole flow of that. When you feel the pressure mounting, A, how, how do you recognize it? That's the first question. How do you recognize in yourself, in those sorts of situations, Charlotte, where the pressure is mounting in mm -hmm. a way that feels like if I don't reframe it, it's going to take me out rather than keep me strong within it. How, so if you could just discuss that chain or share that chain in a practical way for us, what do you feel? What do you do? Talk that through, because I think this is incredibly helpful to make it practical and specific. So I think the first the first signs of those pressure moments for me is where I've, I'm feeling out of my comfort zone. I put the pressure on myself. I want to know everything now. In the past, I would be very much a perfectionist. I really need to understand every part of this. And I was trying to probably trying to rush it too much. And now I have that kind of, like you say, that that toolkit that I can sort of mentally take a step back and think about how I how I cope with it. So what do I do? I break it down into kind of manageable bite-sized chunks because otherwise the, the task, whatever that is, can feel really overwhelming. One of the things that I would do is just really prioritise breaking it down. Probably even before that, actually take a step back and think about this particular pressure moment I need to think about, you know, how I'm how I'm going to show up in that moment and that relationship under pressure. So if I think about a good example, I've had to make some, you know, probably unpopular choices and in terms of business change over the years. I can either choose to shrivel up in the corner or I can choose the relationship I'm going to have with the pressure in those moments. And for me, it's like, well, OK, I'm going to need to lead through a really high pressure moment. What am I going to hold on to? through that pressure. So again, it's for me, it's choosing my attitude. So for example, I would think about, I'm going to hold on to two things which are really important to me in how I show up as a leader. Integrity and kindness are, pre are pretty key to my core values. Whilst this isn't a, a, a particularly easy thing to do in terms of business change, I need to be able to hold on to those two things. And as long as I can hold on to those two things through whatever I change I'm going to deliver into a business, I know that at the end of it, I can look myself in the mirror. And I think that's the most important thing in that type of example. I think the other thing in terms of reframing it is just, you know, making sure I'm then doing one thing for myself a day. In pressure moments, I would make sure that I'm doing one, one positive thing for myself. So simple things like taking the dog for a walk or having a bath. Like real, it sounds ridiculous, I know, but we're often really hard on ourselves, actually. And we often don't realize that the small habits that we practice during high pressure moments can really help take the pressure cooker off a little bit. We spend a long time uh, at work and we have to do something we love. So, you know, making sure that I give myself permission to, to take time for myself during pressure moments is, is really important. That's so hard as well, isn't it? I, mean, I think that's what so many people struggle with. You know, it's that what we call the sort of no do gap. You know, I know that that's going to be good for me. I know I need to go and relax in a bath or I know I need to go and get some air. But the pressure of the doing, you know, yeah. what we would say, the dog brain just telling us, keep going, keep going, just crack on through, keep on going, is really counter to that. And it takes a lot of discipline, I feel, or self-care, self-love, self-belief to say, actually, five minutes or even 10 minutes or even half an hour walking outside at the moment is going to give me something that I wouldn't have if I just cracked on through. But that takes a lot of effort because the yeah, natural propensity, isn't it, is to just keep going. 
It, it absolutely does. And I, I've fallen victim, and I'm sure you meet many leaders who, who talk about this, but you sometimes fall off the wagon, mm, <laughs> so to yeah. speak, with that, because yeah. it is not easy, because it is about a, a practice behaviour, and I have to really try and catch myself and then look out for the signs. When am I slipping into that moment? And for me, it would be like my diary is starting to get too busy, probably drinking a bit more caffeine than I should. The equilibrium mm. is not there. I'm getting stuck into the weeds. And I, generally, I, I end up getting ill. I know now before I get to that stage that I have to do something proactively about, about it before I get to that stage. And I've, I've started putting like, you know, thinking time in my diary I remember a boss right. saying to me, it would make me really happy if one day I phoned you and you said you're on a two hour dog walk because <laughs> I used to think, that's insane. What would my boss say to me that he'd be really happy if I would be on a dog walk? And he, and, but now I get it because yeah. actually some of my best thinking is actually when I just am outside. There's something yeah. about, for me, getting out into nature, walking, walking with my dog, um, where I'm listening to a podcast. It allows me to just declutter completely. Yeah. Sometimes if I'm coming into the office or if I'm going to meet somebody, just an hour in the car even, just to just process, because our lives are so busy. Yeah. Um, that's what I mean about taking a bath. Like yes. it, it really is, literally, how do you put yourself in some moments once a day where you have time to declutter from the daily pressure? Yeah. In our increasingly speedy, uncertain and noisy world, this idea of decluttering is becoming more and more important for all of us. I've had many guests on this podcast who've spoken about this in some form or other and shared what they do to declutter their heads. You know, to clear that brain noise that comes from what I call keeping too many tabs open in my head, to create ways of resisting the temptation to keep going and instead to give ourselves permission to frankly slow down. When we learn to slow down, we can actually go faster. Choosing to do one positive thing for ourselves each day enables us to step away from that noise and to take a moment to declutter our head. This phrase declutter has got me thinking about Marie Kondo and her best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Marie talks about an epiphany that she had when she realized that rather than just focusing on throwing things out, she'd be better off identifying the things that really made her happy. Anyone who's familiar with her method will recall her key recommendation to hold each possession in your hand and ask, does this spark joy? And if it does, hold on to it, and if not, chuck it out. I'm reflecting now on how this method for tidying our physical environment could be helpful when we think of decluttering the whole volume of stuff that we carry in our heads. The volume that many of us feel mounting up when we're in high pressure moments. Imagine if Kondo's answer was, okay, go on, get a bigger cupboard. That's what we tend to do with our time. We try and create more space to house more things. Oh, I'll just squeeze that in there. I can do that while I'm running this. I don't need that break. I'll run it back to back. This idea of decluttering our heads invites us to take a look at all that stuff that's creating the pressure. And rather than think, how can I fit all of that in? Instead, ask ourselves, what do I need to keep? We could even try asking what sparks joy. We might surprise ourselves with that answer. We could define our own principles for decluttering so that we can carry out our own volume audit in order to better navigate the pressure. For example, with the volume of all the things you currently feel you have to do, metaphorically hold each element you're facing and ask yourself, is this where I can add the greatest value? Will this help me grow? 
Will this enable someone else? Will this be fun? And where the answer is no, you choose to either throw it out or delegate it. I think it's time for all of us to write our own book of life-changing magic for managing the volume of pressure. It sounds like you've really learnt at quite a young age, actually, to really listen to yourself, to feel yourself and to understand what you need before it's too much. Yeah. And how do you do that now, Charlotte, when you're leading other people? How do you help I, them do that? I'm really mindful of um, the shadow that I cast as a leader and you know, set, setting um, setting probably the wrong example. So, for example, sometimes when I would go on holiday in the past or have a long weekend and, you know, I'd be I'd be away and I would be on my work email quite a lot. I don't think I was aware how that shadow can be cast because what that does is as a leader it says to people you know well she's she's doing that while she's on holiday she expects me to do it mm. and that puts pressure down in in a really in a really negative way actually when you when you really unpack it with people they don't look at that and think that's a good a good behavior they look at that and think well she's expe expecting me to do that um and I think, you know, I, I didn't realise that at the time, but I've really tried hard now to make sure that I'm not doing that. And I also realised there's a situation last year where when I was on holiday in America and um, there were some decisions that needed to be made. Um, and I deliberately made a conscious choice that I was only going to check my email a couple of times when I was on holiday. And there was a couple of things that happened. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to let it go because I've got a really good team, a highly capable team that I trust. There are other people in the organization that can pick this up. But more importantly than that, I'm on an eight hour time difference because mm -hmm. of the title I carry. There is a responsibility with that. Right. So if I respond, what's going to happen is somebody's going to feel the need to respond to me. And then somebody's going to need somebody's going to expect me to respond back with the time zone difference with me traveling, that potentially puts like three days between the initial challenge and getting to a resolution. So it wastes time, it creates chaos, um, because and somebody feels the need to respond to me because of the badge that I carry with my title. Yeah. And I'll probably create more, it's probably more unhelpful than it is helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. understanding that is a, it's, it's, it's really cathartic to just let, actually let, let, let some stuff go and realize that, you know, if you've got the right people around you and you've got the capability, then you have to trust that they can do that. Otherwise, they shouldn't be in the job. And I yeah. think that I remember coming back from my holiday last year and one of my peers on the exec team said to me, I couldn't believe that you switched off and and you let all that go. And it was amazing to watch. Congratulations. I was really oh, shocked that I did it. Yeah. Um, because again, it's just forcing myself to just try to be a different version of myself as a leader and thinking the team are capable and they can solve this. I don't need to solve everything. It's a constant update, isn't it? It's like, it's almost like, you know, how you have your phone that you just update it and it, it and it's better. I feel like that's what we as human beings have to do all the time and it never stops in a good way, really, because yeah. you're having to readjust to new situations, new contexts and old habits that now don't serve you, actually. They did serve yeah. you then, but now they don't serve you anymore. And so it's yeah. like a reboot. Okay, so thank you for getting me that far. Now I yeah. need a different habit to get me yeah. this far. It's funny, I, I had um, um, Andy Salmon on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he's 
an ex-Royal Marine, a commander, and he was saying that one of the key things in a life and death, like a real life and death situation, is he used the phrase train down. Because, you, I mean, literally, you don't know if the person is going to live, let alone be in the role. Yeah. And if you haven't, if you haven't drilled the training down mechanism, you know, like everyone mm. knows that you can train down. And I thought that's so helpful when you think of delegation. I mean, yeah. we all need to train down. And it's not, it doesn't come natural, you know, because uh, it's sometimes it's hard to let go. It, and, and I totally understand that. But I, I do see that sometimes as a leader, we can be more unhelpful in the, in some of those yeah. pressure moments. And actually yeah. others can solve it. Um, and we need to be able to empower and trust our teams more. I moved from a commercial role into a, a product and a, and a marketing role. And particularly on the product side, it was a huge stretch for me because, you know, I, I was managing people who know everything, who are real product experts about how a product is, is designed from consumer insight all the way through to production. I didn't know anything about that. But then I suddenly realized and in those pressure moments, it's about the relationship you have with pressure. So I, mm. I learned to flip it and say, well, I might not know everything about, you know, product design, engineering, supply chain, but I do know about this and I can bring something, you know, different and something uniquely that only I can do and I can own. And that's why I've been put into this role. Yeah. And even if they mess up, that's part of the journey, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, I'm a, you know, I, I really used to struggle early on in my career with making mistakes and um, used to really beat myself up for it. But when I think about some of the some of the mistakes I've made in my career, is when I'm learning the most. Yeah. Like, and and I'm a big fan of turning something painful into something positive and something powerful. Yeah. Um, because I think you know we we nobody's perfect and we we all do make mistakes. So knowing those knowing problems, challenges, or mistakes, and turning that insight into insight and learning is is hugely powerful. Yeah. Um, and you know, even a ritual, I my, I do this with my team a lot. We 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 do that kind of rinse, rinse and and repeat, but then mm-hmm. don't repeat the same mistake twice. But this big kind of what's the learning we're going to take from that? Mm-hmm. What would we do better? You know. What would make? What would we repeat? What would we do differently? But it is something I I do ritualize because it's again it's familiar from a sporting analogy for me because yeah. in a sports team you would do that and and the best teams in the world they do that they sit back even if they've won they sit back and they take a moment to go what was brilliant about that but yeah. what could we do even better what or what would we do differently next time and there will always be a learning in it and yes. it's it's such a shame that leaders don't create the space to to take those moments, even when you're winning, to say, what would we do better next time? I so, so agree. It's it's one of the most neglected areas, I think, in business. Yeah. Is the discipline of learning. Yeah, and it's live feedback, right? Because yeah. I'm, I'm every, every team meeting, I'm like, what was brilliant, but what would make this meeting even better? Because it's, it's not really my meeting, it's your meeting. So absolutely, you, know, you need to tell, and it's like it's live feedback that you it can really take is. and and you know keep keep the the wheel spinning, keep moving. Otherwise, you everyone gets very stale, and that's I not agree. good. It's, it's not no, good. it's not. And actually, you know, when you look at sport and you look at you know performing arts, when you look at any sense of performance, you're expected to go back to your next training or go back to your next rehearsal, having taken the notes. 
or, or the wash up from, you know, whatever the, the, the game or the piece of performance is. And you'd be deemed as not doing your job if you hadn't actually. Yeah. Yeah, right? And yet, and yet we sit in meetings and they're done the same way for like decades sometimes, yeah. you know, it, which is so worrying. And no one's actually looking at, is this still fit for purpose? Purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of, of, of going back in, um, and, and making sure that we take time to learn. Brilliant. I want to go back to something you said earlier on around having, I think you were describing a tricky conversation or a tricky decision in, in a transformation of a business and the two things that you hold on to as integrity and kindness, how does integrity help you do that? What does integrity A mean to you? Charlotte, because I think um, like these these words are used, aren't they, in organisations? We do things with integrity. We do things with kindness. And I'm often wondering, what does that mean to individuals and how does it actually allow you to show up better? So the integrity piece for me is about if there is a change that I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure that to the best of my knowledge, I have gone down and really understood the impact um, of that change. So preparation for me and understanding, taking the time to really understand the change that I'm going to make and the impact that it's going to have, positive or negative, um, and the interdependencies is really important because when, when I stand in front of the organisation and say, I'm going to change this from this and this is why, I want to make sure that to the best of my knowledge, um, I can answer p questions around that because people are going to ask questions immediately. So the integrity piece of me is just, I need to know this business. I need to understand as much as I can, all of those interdependent moving parts so I can explain people and I can bring people with me on that journey. So the, the integrity piece is more about understanding how it all fits together um, and the changes that I'm I'm going to make. And that I've done my homework, more than anything that I've done my homework, that you can pressure test me and it's robust enough that I'm, I am I can actually stand behind it because preparation is hugely important to me. And um, it's one of the rituals in pressure moments. Preparation is, is key for me. I like to be really well prepared in certain roles. That's not always possible. So we have, we have to be agile enough to 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 you know, be able to work around that. But where where possible, where I am leading that a change or um or, or a business transformation, then I need to make sure that I've I've done as much prep as possible. So I think the kindness piece is just like, you know, some of the changes that you might make might have an adverse impact on somebody. And I think it's just having genuine, being genuinely humble and compassionate um, for people through that process, you know, walking around the building and checking in on people and seeing if they're actually okay and asking them if they're okay, that kind of personal touch. And whilst I might've made some changes, I think it's about just that showing I actually physically care. Um, it can make a huge difference to people. And that's a difficult balance sometimes, isn't it? To have a really tough message connected with care. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, but it is possible. It is yes, possible. I agree. I agree. And it's, it comes down to real authentic care, doesn't it? Because otherwise it can look very tokenistic. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I'm wondering when you talk about preparation, Charlotte, is this preparation of the content? So I'm hearing in what you're saying, you know, really understanding every scenario planning, almost like the what ifs, um, so that you can stand confidently in front of the business 
with a clear sense of why you're doing this. Yeah. Where does the preparation of you, so going back to your amateur dramatics or, you know, where does, how does that play out for you, the actual preparation of you? So I will always sit down and think about, um, like I said, like in, in a change like that, like what are the values I'm going to hold on to and how is that going to show up? So if I was announcing a change, um, then thinking about like, what does my diary look like that week and how am I going to make sure I'm I'm there for for people and being thoughtful about that. So like making a big announcement and then rushing out saying, how is everybody? It's, it's yeah. just, you know, that's that's not going to be the right, right way to go about it. So just thinking consciously about my diary, where I'm going to be, what are the key, what are the critical impact moments throughout that week where I can show up for those people, but holding on to those two values of integrity and kindness. The, the mental preparation comes from the fact that look, if 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 in that example where I was making a, a specific change, then making sure I've got good sleep, good rest mm. um, from a personal perspective, making sure that I'm the best version of myself because that's what people are going to need from me. You know, those conversations are sometimes, some of them will be positive because change is not always negative, right? Some of them Mm. are going to be really positive people, but being conscious about making sure I'm the best version of myself for them because they deserve that from me, whether it's a positive change or or a not so positive change from from an individual perspective, I need to take care of myself to make sure that I am the best for them. Yeah. And do you do you have a way of like, you know, going back to your hockey team, sometimes I suppose your team, like your exec team or the people yeah. that you're, you know, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with when you're making these decisions. What what do you have a way of connecting with these these team members when you're, yeah. you know, what, what do you do as an exec team that might re- really enables you to think like a hockey field? We're going out whether we win or whether we lose, we're going out together. One of the um, habits that we practice actually as an exec team every week is we talk about our reality, like what's our current reality. And we just do a bit of a, you know, a couple of minutes of sharing where nobody interrupts anyone else because it's your truth, right? And I think it, it's hugely powerful because these relationships have to be, you know, big enough to to get the get the work done. So talking about how you're genuinely feeling about something, um, and, and sharing what's exciting you, what's what's challenging, that team camaraderie, that team spirit is hugely beneficial. And I can categorically say that you know, around that table, there's many of occasion where I've I've been I've had a problem, and I've asked for help because actually I can't solve it all on my own. And it's often the case where you know one of us will phone the other one and say, I mean, I've got a bit of a challenge. Can can you help me? What do you think about this? It's not very often that leaders actually talk about this stuff. You know, mm. I remember being, you know, further down in the organization, looking up and thinking, gosh, the exec team, they know all the answers. And you know what? We don't. And mm. I find myself saying it a lot because it was a really, it was like somebody lifted the lid off the biggest secret in the in the business world when I when I progressed up the organization. And I remember sitting down thinking, wow, I can't believe that this exec member didn't know the answer to that or didn't, I was asking me. Um, It's a really big moment actually when you realise it, but it's like nobody talks about that stuff and says actually leaders are even at my level or even more senior at CEO level, they always need to ask for help. Yeah. They don't have all the answers. Yeah, or sometimes say I don't know. Yeah. 
And there's something really powerful in that, actually. And I've, again, learned that a lot over the last few years. I will always say, like, we, do, we don't have all the answers. And, and actually, we also don't get some of the changes you might make. We all don't always get them right. But we listen. We listen. We take the learnings and, and we make it better. Um, and we move forward. There is a perception that as leaders, we, you know, we should have all the answers and that's just not reality. Yeah. What's the worst pressure, Charlotte, that you've ever felt? I think it's just, for me, it goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is the, the fear of letting the team down. That's the worst pressure for me. So whether it's something that I functionally own within the business that, that goes wrong, I would then put huge pressure on myself to think, gosh, it's my bit that's broken or let the team down. I think that's the biggest pressure that I feel. Have you got a specific example? Does something come to mind as you say that out loud? I guess probably, okay, a scenario where, you know, I guess the, you know, the sales line isn't performing or we, yeah, we challenge on one of the, the, the key KPIs. The, and the rest of the business is performing and my region isn't performing. I guess that's probably where I feel some of the biggest pressure. And then it's how I respond in, in those moments. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I've got a really good team around me that we come together and we think about, you know, how are we going to solve this together? You know, what's it going to take to, to get us back on track? What are our options? And very much don't try and solve it on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you lean in to others the minute you feel pressure mounting. Yeah, I, th- I think I think so. If I if I really think about it, I'm I'm very much a, an inclusive leader because I yeah. know that I don't have all the answers, and actually, we'll get to a better outcome if I open that up and get more of an expansive thinking into into the room and and straight away, there's more options on the table than yeah. me just that yeah. trying to solve it on my own. That, that that diversity of thought and the diversity that you have around you in terms of the team that are reporting in is hugely important, particularly in the pressure moments, because that's where the greatest creativity is going to come from. And it, you know, I, I, genuinely speaking, there'll be something that comes out of those conversations every time that I'll be like, I'd never thought of that. Yeah. It's great modeling as well in terms of, you know, what you were saying earlier around not not having all the answers and not necessarily knowing and to be able to be brave enough to say in those moments, do you know what, this isn't great, let's get our heads together because yeah. I don't have the answer on my own. <laughs> there is something really powerful in that because, um, you know, I am known as a bit of a hallmark of building like really unstoppable teams that actually really genuinely believe we can do anything. I'd like to think it's because of that particular behavior that it's as I said it starts from the very very beginning from a young age of being part of a team and the power of that team to be able to achieve anything yeah I love that you mentioned earlier on that you know you'd lost your father how do you manage when like personal pressure comes into professional pressure or when people in your team's personal pressure comes into professional pressure I think um that too often we you know over past years we don't um cut ourselves enough slack that actually we're all humans you know we're not robots and when we come to work you don't realize what people are coming in and what what they're bringing into 
what's the version that you're going to get. That's actually why part of the current reality check-in that we do as an exec team is hugely helpful because it's about knowing the whole person. You know, that could could impact somebody's mood in and, and how they show up and how they behave, what they say. So I think, you know, having building strong relationships, big relationships with kind of key people in the organisation it's hugely important for for those big pressure moments. So when I take a situation where, you know, I, I, I lost my father, I felt like I had this huge blanket around me from the organization, particularly from, from the, the exec team and, and the Rubin family. And it helped get me get through it. It really did help me get through it. It was like this extended family around me. If I think about some of my, you know, some of my team over the years that have you know, everybody has some of the the external pressure um, coming into the that you can't separate it, mm. and so it's just it's 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 just acknowledging it and saying, you know, I'm I'm not on my best today because I've got this going on, and we we live in a world now where actually, you know, most jobs are not nine to five. I don't like this idea of this you know work life balance should be should for me it just it doesn't that whole sentiment. Um, it just doesn't work for me because it it is about that work-life integration for me. Anyone who knows me is aware that I'm not a fan of the phrase work-life balance. Firstly, because it distinguishes work from life. And secondly, the word balance feels pressurising in itself. Balance implies creating equal weight. I'm not sure I've ever had equal weight in my work and life. And like Charlotte, I'm all for integration rather than balance. I remember um, speaking to Tasita Small, founder of the Small HR company on this podcast a few months ago, where she shared how much she enjoys looking at emails on holiday when she's lying on the beach. Well, for her, it's energizing to see that the business is carrying on without her. Also, looking at them reduces the pressure of returning from holiday to a stack of unread emails. I sort of get that on some level but it also runs the risk of that one email, you know the one, that then subsumes you for the rest of the day. But I totally get that there are times when we actively choose to be in a sprint or a deep dive because it's creatively exciting. I have times when I just want to immerse myself in something with no distractions because it's highly energizing and frankly, I want to discover more and that might mean that I work late. Maybe rather than striving for balance, The practice is to regularly ask ourselves, how do I want the many parts of my life to fit together in a way that works for me and those I love? It's important to keep asking, what at that moment deserves more of my attention? And to keep asking, am I actively choosing? At different times in our lives, we place our energy in different places for different reasons, prioritizing different things at different times rather than trying to balance them all. And it's always a choice. Charlotte makes a really important point about how we lead others when we notice that parts of their lives deserve more attention than they're currently giving. For example, people in our team or our family who we feel need to pay more attention to their shed, like Charlotte's boss suggesting she take a two-hour dog walk, or colleagues needing more space to look after elderly parents or ill loved ones. Anyway, back to Charlotte, who gives a great example about how she raised this with one of her team. I had somebody in my team 
um, and they were going through a really difficult stage in their in their personal life. I could visually see them on on the screen, seeing that they were at breaking point, mm. and they were working lots of hours, and the extra pressure of the what was going on in their personal life. You could see them melting right in front of me. Mm. And I remember saying to this person, like, "What is it that you know gets you away, gives you a bit of a mental break? Um, what is it you like doing?" And this person said, I love fishing, but I haven't been fishing for so long. And I said, okay, well, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? And he was like, well, obviously I'm at work. I was like, actually, you're not from like, why don't you go fishing? <laughs> yeah. Because you at your best, I need you in that role and you at your best is not this version. So I need to get you back to your best version. And, and I remember this person went fishing and I phoned them that night and said, how was it? And he said, it's the best thing I could have done. Thank you. Love that. But Love we've that. got to spot. We've got to spot the signs yes. of like as a leader now. You've got to be able to spot the signs of when the the personal pressure is creeping into into the, into the work pressure. Yes, and that becomes a real melting pot. And yeah. but for me, that's about knowing your team and yeah. asking the questions, taking time to really understand them as in yeah. as as a human being. Yeah, and and again, you know. My sense is that that person wouldn't have been so honest and trusting with you had you not been building that for a long, long time within Absolutely. that team. You know, Absolutely. you can't suddenly do that, have that conversation when you you haven't done it ever before. You've it got to put the hard yards in, Sarah, with, with absolute, people. You absolutely do. It's yeah. such an important point. And the hard yards in building a team as well as the hard yards in, you know, building commercial success. And the two sit so closely together and one is dependent on the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know what? I think it's hugely undervalued as well. Like, you know, leaders are very outcome driven. It's all about the task, but we have to balance that with really knowing our people. Yeah. So on that note, Charlotte, I would love to ask you the two questions that I ask everybody on this podcast, which is if there were two things that you would offer or pay forward to anyone listening who wants to be better under pressure what would your two offers be my first one would be consciously managing pressure um instead of it letting it manage you um i did often talk about this pressure's like this companion on your journey right it's like this friend that you can fall out with and you need to change up that relationship with so i think it's about you know making sure that you're you know that you're responsible for your own success and you know you can have a positive influence on any situation you're in so consciously managing that pressure and change up that relationship if it's if it's suddenly not working the second one is ask for help leaders are humans humans too and despite that myth we don't have all the answers i i told you it took a lot of me a long time to realize that so don't be afraid to ask for help if you're under too much pressure you don't have to solve everything on your own. Just on that point, Charlotte, I think it's really interesting. I was talking to someone recently and they said um, they were feeling, they were, un, they were under a lot of uh, pressure um, and they're quite young. And they cried in the office and in the meeting that they then had with uh, their boss, the boss sort of said, and bear in mind, this is just a sort of filter through a conversation, sort of said, right, that can only happen once. So when you say, ask for help, 
yes, ask for help for someone like you. But I do think, unfortunately, there are some leaders out there that asking for help is seen as, are they resilient enough? So I have, I really struggle with that because I think asking for help doesn't mean that you're, you're weak. It means you're actually really brave. For me, it's about showing the, you know, the vulnerability of like, actually, you don't know everything. And I just need some help here to figure this out. Or it might not even be to, I'm not asking you to solve it. I'm just asking Mm. you to bounce something with me. So I personally don't see asking for help as a as a weakness. It is ap- an absolute strength. And there's been a, there's this myth that we have to dispel because I I find you know hearing stories like that doesn't make me feel proud to you know be a leader. Yeah, I totally agree. And I suppose those are choices about what sort of systemic um, influence you want to work in. Really, I mean they're, they're yeah. bigger questions, really, aren't they? Around is this the sort of culture that I want to work in? Yeah, 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 to- totally. It is about, you know, making sure that you, you know, particularly when you're young in your career, some sort of situation like that could really scar somebody Yes. Um, for, for a really long time. So I think as a leader, it's being being really conscious about the impact that we have in, in those moments, because that person's going to now carry that and think, well, I, I, I can never ask for help. I can never show any sign of vulnerability because it's frowned upon as not being, you know, strong enough mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, you don't know what that we don't know what that person in that I don't know what that person in that situation is going to be. There might have been an external, the personal pressure that's led to them to, you know, and as a leader, it's our job to understand and be able to separate is it is it a personal pressure, is it a work pressure, is it is it both? And unpack some of that mm. and, and read the signs. And build the muscle that they can manage it. You know, yeah. as you say, flip it, flip it. Absolutely. How, can you, how can you help someone flip it? Yeah, absolutely. How can you you know, help them consciously reframe pressure. Yeah. What a great way to finish. <laughs> Gosh, that flew by. I didn't yeah. expect I find that quickly, but it's always good fun talking to you. You make it really easy. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte, so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better and turn it into a positive relationship. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method, or alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, Goodbye.